You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Short while ago, I spoke with the opposition leader Matthew Guy, and he very graciously conceded that Labor will again form a strong, stable majority government. On your behalf, on your on your behalf, I thanked him for his gracious concession, and I wished uh, him and his wife Renee and all his colleagues all the very best for whatever the future may hold. <laughs> Friends, the people of Victoria have today overwhelmingly endorsed a positive and optimistic plan for our state. They have, in record numbers, at the same time, rejected the low road of fear and division. And for that, I am very, very proud. Each to each and every member of the Cabinet, Parliamentary Secretaries, caucus colleagues, I'm so proud of the work that you've done, the, the achievements that you have been able to underpin these last four years, and I thank each and every member of the team and all of those who will be joining us in a... ..in a strong, stable majority government. The voice there of a triumphant Daniel Andrews, the premier, un- ongoing premier for the next four years of the uh, of Victoria and uh, the leader of the Victorian Labor Party. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR digital, 3cr.org.au. My name's Nick. And uh, in this show, we're going to be hearing a small section from uh, last year's Entheogenesis Australis uh, Psychedelic Symposium, hearing from Ben Sessa from the UK. Uh, we'll also be hearing a, uh, a short bit from the European Harm Reduction Conference from Drug Reporter, a drug reporter and organisation in Europe who do a lot of uh, social media videos uh, and audio. You can find them on social media. Uh, but first, uh, just a little um, uh, look around uh, at the election. There's still results that are, are coming out, although we know the overall result. There's still uh, some seats uh, that uh, we're not sure about, especially in the Upper House. And the Upper House is where we're particularly watching Uh in the northern metropolitan region, it looks like um, at this stage that we might end up with somebody from the Hinch Justice Party rather than uh, show favourite Fiona Patton from the Reason Party or somebody like uh, Stephen Jolly from the Socialists who also run, ran a strong campaign uh, in the northern metropolitan region. Uh, in the seat of Richmond, which uh, was p- potentially one of the ones uh, that was going to swing towards Greens, although there uh, have been some controversies around the Green candidate in the seat of Richmond. Uh, was It was also challenged by Judy Ryan from the uh, Reason Party, who was also a strong advocate for the medically supervised injecting room and the incumbent uh, Labor's Richard Wynne. And it looks like Richard Wynne has had a satisfactory victory. Uh, So congratulations to Richard. And here was Richard speaking at the Yarra Drug Health Forum pre-election meeting just a few weeks ago about uh, some of his party's uh, contributions to drug policy over the past four years. And I think it, it is best epitomised by uh, what we achieved in the 2018-19 budget. And this is really the fantastic work uh, of my colleague Martin Foley. Uh, it includes a record investment of nearly $260 million in drug services, an increase of 50%, 57% over the last four budgets. 
Uh, and in this budget, uh, in that budget, we announced $57 million in new investment, uh, which will support the, uh, the development of a new uh, residential treatment facility in the Grampians and three new residential uh, rehabilitation facilities in regional Victoria, uh, and also uh, supporting minor infrastructure and capital works in, in existing facilities. Uh, particularly those that are dealing with obviously mental health and drug issues. Uh, you'll all be well aware of our $184 million ICE action plan and that's rolling out across Victoria and so of course is our $87 million drug rehabilitation uh, plan. And the centrepiece of that plan, I don't need to tell any of you here what that's about, it is of course 100 new residential rehab beds which, uh, which have opened uh, earlier this year. This means uh, with all of our investments over the last three years, the government has committed more than double the number of residential rehabilitation beds available in Victoria. We commenced the four year term with 208 beds in, in late 2014. Uh, and with this, uh, with this investment, we will have 470 beds across Victoria. Our strategy pretty much for the whole of our uh, whole of my time uh, in, in, um, in government has been about harm minimisation. I mean, that's essentially been the public policy position that we have taken, and we've done a lot of work in that space, whether it's needle and syringe programs uh, and, and the like. Uh, we think that, uh, and I know that there's been in, incredible advocacy for the medically supervised injecting facility. Richard Wynne there, the returning member for the seat of Richmond. Uh, congratulations to Richard on his victory at yesterday's Victorian election. Uh, and he was speaking there of a few of the uh, of the policy implementations of the Victorian Labor Party, but um, uh, during uh, those discussions there, there are many other issues, and there are issues that we've followed very closely uh, on this show uh, over, the, uh, over the years, over the three, more than three years that we've been broadcast now, uh, issues including the use of <coughs> sniffer dogs, which, uh, again, the reporting uh, every time that uh, evidence is collected on the effectiveness of sniffer dogs, they're shown to be wrong three out of four times. They do not create a, uh, <coughs> a response uh, from the community that leads to uh, safer use of drugs or less use of drugs, which are the two outcomes uh, that you would be looking for. So that's something that the Labor Party has continued to support. Under the Labor Party in the last term, we saw uh, the near rollout of sniffer dogs in areas like the Chapel Street area. This is uh, unprecedented in Victoria. Um, having this sort of thing happen. And we also had uh, some uh, talk from the police minister, uh, Lisa Neville, uh, that she, uh, some strong words uh, against music festivals. Luckily, we haven't quite seen the same intensity uh, as is happening in New South Wales right now, where the New South Wales police uh, tried to charge $200,000 to Bohemian Beat Freaks, a, a little festival up in uh, northern New South Wales, uh, for their presence. Um, the previous year, the cost of the police uh, on site was $17,000. So a slight jump up to $200,000. That festival's now moved uh, across the borderline into Queensland. Um, so we haven't quite seen that, that level, but we have seen some similar rhetoric from some of our leaders in the Labor Party who have just been re-elected. Uh, medical cannabis, uh, the, the Labor Party has uh, seen that um, seen that through, but it's a very, very limited scheme with a lot of problems. It's still something uh, that needs a lot of looking at. Uh, recreational uh, cannabis, not something that we've seen any progress on whatsoever, uh, other than through the uh, drug uh, drug law reform inquiry report, the 650-page report uh, that uh, Labor made a rather pittance of a response, although I believe the response was from Martin Dixon, uh, who has um, left uh, the Labor Party. I, I can't remember if he's retiring or if he uh, if he wasn't uh, re-elected. Uh, pill testing, another big issue uh, that we've uh, been following and haven't seen a whole lot of progress in Victoria. 
uh, psychedelic science, another uh, ongoing issue. Not sure if the uh, that we can blame the politicians as much uh, for that at this point. There's a lot of other uh, hurdles with that. Uh, the medically supervised injecting room, the one thing that the Labor Party can, can say that it has supported, um, although it t- took a little while to get them on, but they should be commended uh, for uh, getting on board. And, um, and, and the election result, I think, uh, safely puts that centre... Uh, in in the community it's it's going to be there we're going to have the uh, the finished center for the proper trial uh of this program uh early next year as well so there's a few things to celebrate as we also look to the future and don't get complacent there are many more victories uh to be won and uh we still have an uphill fight but uh i think it's important that we keep focused and keep doing that just about to hear from the european drug reporter uh from the european harm reduction conference. Uh, But before we do, I want to uh, direct your attention to the fact that we have just launched our fundraiser, a fundraiser where we're looking to uh, fix up our our website, make it more of a portal for all the information that you want to know about how to change these drug laws, uh, and also to improve our ability to cover events, uh, to uh, uh, reach out to people and to help help train others and and help widen and broaden the voice uh, of drug law reform in Victoria and in Australia. Uh, If you head to our website, npsychedelia.org, you'll be able to find your way uh, to the donate link and a little bit more information about what we're doing. So please check that out, npsychedelia.org, or you can find that uh, via the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. This right now is the drug reporter from the European Harm Reduction Conference. We are now uh, at the first day of the Harm Reduction Conference, European Harm Reduction Conference in Bucharest, and we have now uh, a registered number of 360 people, which is much more than we expected. We cover uh, hepatitis C, HIV, we cover prison, we cover new psychoactive substances, we cover uh, topics such as homelessness, mental health, sex work. It's the first time in, uh, in our uh, local history in Harmidashan field when this kind of event takes place here. We can see um, a very serious divide, uh, a regional divide in the European Union. We have really having uh, an emergency situation in many countries, a crisis where harm reduction services which were established in the 2000s co- completely collapsed. And this is partly because of a change in funding environment, uh, also partly ch- ch- change in political uh, environments. In Bulgaria, needle and syringe programs completely stopped. There is no, not, no needle exchange anymore because of lack of funding. In Hungary, we still have on paper many uh, needle and syringe programs, and some of them really operate. But uh, the two largest programs were shut down, actually, who, which uh, served uh, more than half of needles distributed in the whole country. Here, where we are in Romania, we know that uh, uh, clients served by needle exchange programs in, in just this year dropped from 7,500 to 2,000 people. We have to struggle to keep alive our services, but I think this is something that everybody should be aware of and uh, not be very comfortable thinking that they have resources for now because tomorrow you never know. A lot of isentres is very good. <laughs> We are having a generalized talkout uh, regarding the HIV treatment in uh, 11 hospitals now. Starting with the last days of uh, August, we, we start to miss the HIV treatment from the, from the hospitals. I receive uh, some participants bring me, bring me donation and uh, yeah, I will send it. In comparison with 2006, uh, there were, I think, six organizations who were providing harm reduction services, but f- b- by the time they, they closed due to lack of funding because the financial budget decreased by 65%. The harm reduction services uh, in Bulgaria stopped uh, in July 2017 after the global fund withdrew the country. We don't have any exchange. Uh, we also don't, don't have any testing on the streets among uh, the group of people who use drugs and sex workers. And we don't, don't uh, have only, uh, also case management, which is a very, very big problem, because usually people who 
we are working with are very marginalized. Can you tell us what HARIACT is about? HARIACT uh, has been a three-year project uh, financed by the European Commission and uh, it's about harm reduction, uh, scaling up, intensifying, advocating for harm reduction, especially in Eastern EU countries. The main lesson we learned was that we cannot really make changes in harm reduction, even with the big EU project, without governmental involvement. Because if government does not support harm reduction programs and if government is tend to close uh, NGOs, then we cannot come from outside with trainings and teach people how to do testing when the government doesn't find these activities. I see a handcuff on you. What does it represent? Uh, yeah, that, that's about criminalization. Here in the conference we bring a campaign, Chase the Virus, Not People, a campaign by nine uh, regional Eurasian uh, networks of different communities. And we all recognize that criminalization and discrimination is the key barrier for HIV response, hepatitis or TB response. If you are paying unemployment wages, paying uh, all the services, OST, uh, NSP in the highest level, it costs several times less than you are just keeping person in prison. In Germany and in some other countries, Great Britain also, we have a high prevalence of overdoses, also of opiate overdoses, also fentanyl. I don't think um, um, that the situation will be the same as in uh, North America, but we have uh, from 50 to 75 percent of all drug-related deaths are opiate overdoses and we have to develop um, the right services for that, drug consumption rooms, naloxone and uh, some other things. Drug consumption rooms prevent overdose, uh, the prevention of HIV, hepatitis C and other blood transmitted disease. You have no more people in front of your house using drugs in the street, they have uh, proper access to a safe, hygienic and stress-free environment. The benefits involved in the community in harm reduction are that we know what happens first fast. For example, in Glasgow, we had a peer-to-peer -peer naloxone program, gave out more naloxone in one small area of Glasgow. They gave out 1,200 units in 11 months, which was more than every single professional gave out in the previous year in the whole of Glasgow. What is drug checking? What is it about? We propose people who want to consume drug or consume drug to analyze their drugs. We can identify um, especially uh, new uh, substances uh, sold in the uh, internet and also uh, be careful about um, fentanyl, for example, and to be sure that we have not such a big problem as in the United States, in France. What does harm reduction mean to you? It's a philosophy, a notion that uh, sobriety is not for everyone. Not all people uh, need sobriety to function. Some people need drugs to function better. Harm reduction is not only about drug use, it's about how you interfere with other people or institutions with the sit or situations. So it's uh, a way of uh, thinking, living and uh, working. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
and Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick Wallace. Uh, Please head to our website for more information on our fundraiser npsychedelia.org also more information about the show and over the coming months we'll be putting up a lot more information uh, as we redesign our website Uh, right now you're going to hear from ben sessa from the uk he is a child psychiatrist and has been uh, working and looking into the potential of mdma therapy for treating uh, some conditions including among children which can be quite a controversial topic uh He touches on this in this talk from the Entheogenesis Australis uh, 2017 Psychedelic Symposium. You can find the full video at youtube.com forward slash entheotv or by finding the EGA or Entheogenesis Australis website. Melissa asked me to do this talk on the psychedelic renaissance, which is uh, a very broad topic. It's it's, uh, the name of a book that I published a few years ago, and... I don't really know what to say about it, so I'm going to talk about all kinds of other things instead that just come up. So I'm going to talk a a little bit about drug policy. I'm going to also expand a bit more on what I was talking about yesterday in terms of child development and trauma and PTSD and addictions and why people have addictions and why people have drug misuse and addictions as opposed to drug use. And this is really, really important for people to know because the, one of the problems that we have in moving forward with this psychedelic renaissance is that the vast majority of the general public who don't use drugs um, other than alcohol, they cannot see the difference between drug use and drug misuse. Um, so there's a very strong moral objection to people who use drugs that are not the ones that are legally sanctioned. So... There are a lot of hurdles and barriers and challenges moving forward. And the, um, the symposium, we had a, a little panel meeting this morning, and, and the topic there was how can we move forward and what do we need to do? And there's quite a wide variety of opinions on this, which is good. And so I'm, I'm giving you my opinion, and you're most welcome to tell me it's a complete load of crap and throw rotten tomatoes and uh, come up and challenge me. But uh, these are my opinions, and my opinions are formed through... My experience as a doctor working with children and trauma, my experience through what seems to work in terms of talking to authorities and what crucially doesn't work in terms of talking to authorities. Um, Because one way or the other, we've got to find a language to move this forward. So there's a massive difference between drug use and drug misuse. The point is, most drugs are used by most people most of the time relatively benignly. And this is true for all drugs including the really dangerous ones like alcohol and the less dangerous ones that are banned. Um, Even drugs like heroin and crack cocaine and methamphetamine, most of the time when people use these drugs, they don't come to harm. Now, that might sound controversial, but it's really not. That's just data-driven. You know, I have patients on my books who've been heroin and crack cocaine, intravenous heroin and crack cocaine users for 40 years, whereas... There's this sort of perception with the Misuse of Drugs Act that if you use heroin once, you die. If you use crack once, you die. You don't, necessarily, but there are risks there. And um, I'm certainly not wishing to come across as someone who's encouraging people to use any kind of substances whatsoever, but we need to have an informed attitude about the genuine risks and the potential benefits of drugs if we're going to have an understanding in its entirety about this subject. So... When I, when I talk to medical students and I say to them, why do people take drugs, including alcohol? They always say, because they kind of think they ought to say this, oh, man, peer pressure, escape, you know, social degradation. No, the reason that people use drugs is because they are fab. They are fun. They are exciting. They are pleasurable. People are not mugs. They wouldn't use drugs if they weren't pleasurable. And this is why they use drugs because they tap into essential brain chemistry that's designed to bring us pleasure and joy. And that's why we use the drugs, okay? Now, that's a very biological way of looking at it. Now, there's other ways of looking at it. They have this rites of passage and this celebratory aspect. People use psychedelics for much more kind of lofty intellectual pursuits, philosophical, existential explorations. And then, of course, drugs bring people together in terms of social cohesion and communities and families. 
And of course, we hear a lot at this, at this conference about the mystical and spiritual aspects. So these are all positive uses of substances and primarily the reason why people use substances. Now, yesterday I talked a little bit about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, so a little bit more brain chemistry. And this is the nucleus accumbens, which is a part of the brain which responds to pleasure. And um, it's a dopamine-mediated part of the brain. So all of these drugs have different receptor profiles, CB1 and CB2 for cannabis, mu opioid receptors for opiates, um, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline for uh, MDMA, 5-HD2A for the classical psychedelics, etc., etc. Many different receptor profiles for different drugs. But what all of them have in common, they all have an effect on the dopamine-mediated nucleus accumbens. Now, the nucleus accumbens is there to make us carry out things that are good for us and pleasurable, but might be biologically and energetically a bit annoying. Um, sex, for example. So sex is a very powerful drive that we have to do, but it's somewhat illogical for most animals most of the time. Because if you think about it, if you're like a small mammal, like a shrew or something, you have to eat many times your body weight every day in corn, or you will die of hypothermia that night. Okay? It's a very fine balance between input and output of energy. Why would you bother going around chasing after lady shrews or male shrews to have sex with them? There has to be a very powerful biological drive. And this nucleus accumbens is this pleasure-seeking part of the brain which makes us do this. And it's not just sex. It's sleep. It's food. It's shelter. And what we can do with fMRI um, scanning is also demonstrate lots of other um, stimulants that will trigger a nucleus accumbens dopamine-mediated response. And all of, these, all of these different things have been um, studied in an MRI scanner, from chocolate to video games to golf to parenting, and of course, heroin, cigarettes, cocaine, and other drugs. And when the dopamine-mediated uh, response to the nucleus accumbens is triggered, your brain basically says, whatever you just did, do it again and more. I like that. So there's a biological need to take drugs. Now, this is a more accurate response to the question that my medical students give. Why do people abuse drugs? Why does drug misuse, abuse, and addiction occur? And this is nothing to do with drugs. This is the weird thing. Okay, so it surprises people when I say this, that drug addiction is not about drugs. Drug addiction is a physical, social, psychological state of mind that arrives very early in life as a result of changes to brain chemistry and brain structure and brain networks through trauma, primarily, okay? Now, of course, anybody can get addicted to certain drugs, and I can, I'm going to talk a bit more about that. But primarily, the roots of drug misuse and the reason why a person moves from use to misuse is through underlying difficulties in which they've lost that balance between the biological drive to take drugs, which is a pleasurable thing, and the psychological and social factors that prevent us from that happening. So... Take, for example, um, if you have worked really hard all week and you've looked after your family and you've been good at work and you've carried out all your deadlines, have a pint of beer on a Friday night, for Christ's sake. What's wrong with that? Maybe two pints on a Saturday night. That's fine. Now, this is pretty normal stuff. Now, if you're sitting in front of a pint of beer at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, there's something going on in your life. Now, it's not the pints of beer's fault. You can't blame the pint of beer for that. It's the same pint of beer as you had on the Friday night. But for some reason, it's, when you're, it's the pattern and dosing and timing of drug use that makes it drug misuse. And this is why the absolute folly of the war on drugs, the demonizing and targeting of the substances themselves as if somehow they are to blame, which is actually a smokescreen to take our eye off the ball about the need to manage the social and domestic and psychological issues and the mental health issues that underpin drug misuse. And governments are getting away with this by demonizing drug users and demonizing drugs themselves as an excuse for not looking after the psychosocial issues that result in drug abuse. Now, this is a Skinner box. This is a classic piece of kit for a 1960s behavioral psychologist. And it was the work with these kinds of contraptions that in the 60s came up with the theories around why some drugs are addictive more than others. And they put rats into these boxes. And the rat 
um, can press a lever and it delivers a dose of whatever drug you want the rat to have. They would do this with lots and lots of different drugs and depending on how many pellets of the particular drug the rat took, then they would say this drug is more addictive than that drug. So it gave us a good biological model for why become, people become physically or psychologically addicted to drugs. And when you give a rat um, this box and you give them cocaine, they keep pressing the lever over and over and over again. They munch away on all this cocaine. They even stop eating. They starve to death. They do nothing else but take cocaine. Similar thing happens with heroin. Similar thing happens with alcohol. Less so with cannabis. With psychedelics, they'll do it once, and then they'll just kind of sit at the back and watch and not really go back to it much. Like, once is enough. So, so this resulted in this biological model for these drugs are more addictive than those drugs. And um, if you take drugs like heroin or cocaine or alcohol, you will become addicted because you'll be like this rat. And that's what rats do. Now, this was a very common predominant model within the understanding of addiction for a long time. And then in the late 70s, this chap, Bruce Alexander, said, this is ridiculous. You've got this rat locked up in this tiny little box. How can you make reasonable inferences about human behavior based on this rat model, which is completely not like how people live their lives. So he developed this wonderful thing called Rat Park, where the rats were not locked in boxes. They had loads of other rats with them, and they had time to roam around. They could play with toys. They could eat whatever they wanted. And crucially, they could do what rats like doing more than anything else. They can have sex with other rats. So it was a rat park. And when he then gave them these drug delivery options, they do not spend all day banging away on the cocaine, banging away on the heroin. Occasionally, they'll use it every now and then, but it won't become a predominant lifelong um, activity that they do to the exclusion of other things. So what he was saying here is that it's not the drugs themselves that result in addiction. It's not the drugs themselves that result in this compulsion to keep redosing. It's the deprivation of their social circumstances. It's their exclusion, it's the pain, it's their distress, it's their trauma. And what we have then is this model whereby this is a much better model for why people are using and abusing drugs in the way that we see. And when I'm working with people with addiction, just to recap a little bit about what we were saying yesterday. So addiction, as with trauma, and I use the terms trauma and addiction um, interchangeably, because 98% of my patients with addictions particularly to alcohol and opiates, have trauma in their lives, okay? Either big T trauma, the sort of stuff that hits the social services radar, sexual and physical abuse in childhood, but much more commonly, little t trauma, just a sense of dissatisfaction and unhappiness with their childhood, a sense of, I was never feeling wanted. I never felt as if my parents wanted me. I was always put down. I was always neglected. And this concept of emotional abuse and neglect is really, really important. And it's also, it's weirdly more important than the big T traumas often. There's some interesting studies that show that children who have been um, emotionally neglected fare worse than children who've been physically or sexually abused. Because it's the ignoring of children, it's the inability to have that reciprocal dance of attachment that's so important for development of, of the brain. And when you have been traumatized and abused through this kind of neglect, you have these changes in the brain chemistry and changes in the brain structure through this amygdala response I described yesterday, which drugs later slot into really well. So drugs become this catalyst that fit into this brain. So in some ways, PTSD and addiction is simply a healthy adaption of the brain to its environment. The brain is trying to protect itself. The person is trying to protect itself from its pain. And the trouble is, though, that one builds up these narratives about the self and the world. The self, I am useless. I am, I am a, I'm a piece of shit. I'm unlovable and unloved. I deserve to be exploited. I don't deserve care. And the world is a dangerous place, and people are not to be trusted. And then you grow up into an adult, and you go into the big, wide world. And those kinds of survival techniques no longer work. They don't work as a child. Now, they had to develop those survival techniques. 
If they developed a prefrontal cortex response where they could see the good in people and they could trust people, they'd have died because no one was looking after them. No one was feeding them when they were three or four years old. So they've developed these techniques and then they grow up into the adult world and suddenly their survival techniques are considered antisocial. Their use of drugs. They lie, they cheat, they steal. And I, I meet these people in, in casualty at 3 o'clock in the morning and I go and see a 14-year-old girl who's taken an overdose. And the nursing staff will say to me, Ben, be careful with her. Don't trust her. She's, she's just manipulating you. She's an attention seeker. I hate that term, attention-seeking in, in application to children. So I go up to this girl and, and I'll say, good for you for seeking attention. Well done, thank you. You have my attention. Now let's look at whether this self-harm is working for you. Because this adaptive response, which is very self-harm, pain, inflicting upon themselves is what they're doing in order to satisfy this narrative about themselves. This is, a, this is a design fault in the human brain. You'd have thought that the human brain would have some natural equilibrium process whereby if you've had this screwed up attachment relationship, the brain would sort of work out that it wasn't your fault, your carers should have done a better job, you're not worthless, the world is not a dangerous place, but it doesn't. It doesn't. You kind of go into life carrying these narratives. And it's very, very hard to undo those. And this is, results in this rigidity that becomes addiction. Because it's easier to just blunt out the feelings than to try and deal with them. And who can blame them? Who can blame them? And, you know, and I say this to my patients all the time. I, who can blame you for using heroin or, or high-dose alcohol? I would. I don't want to feel pain, and if I, if I feel pain in my life, I make steps to remove the pain. I don't want to be in pain. None of us do. And your pain is so great that you need to do it with these drugs, and I can't blame you. So when we have people growing up in this environment, we have them in this box. And it's really, really hard to undo this. Just as um, I was saying to someone earlier, my only experience of childhood was very, very positive, a really warm, loving family. And so I'm a very trusting person, and I'm very confident in myself, and I'm very secure, and I love other people, and I trust other people. If someone tried to convince me that actually the world is a really dangerous place and people aren't to be trusted, I'm not going to believe them. It's going to be a very hard job for you to try and convince me that you're not all really nice. So this is the same problem that we have when we're doing it the other way around. I can't just tell these patients the world is a good place and that they're good people because when you've learned it since this high, it becomes extremely stuck and it becomes this very solid survival narrative. So in the government's vain attempts, multiple governments through the generations across the world, vain attempts to try and eradicate drugs not control them, but eradicate them, we have prohibition. Now, prohibition is a really interesting word. When I first started talking about this 15, 20 years ago, I only ever heard the word prohibition in the context of um, the 1920s folly, in which everyone accepts was a complete ridiculous thing. People talk about this thing in the 1920s which was ludicrous and caused pain and created the mafia and didn't work. And Now, this... This is prohibition that we are living in now. We've been living in it for almost 50 years. It is exactly the same, in fact, much worse, because it's a much broader level of substances that are prohibited. And it is just as much a socio-political folly. And this, Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, is an utter piece of fiction. It's the biggest piece of pseudoscience on the statute books. These arbitrary codes, A, B, and C, bear no relevance to the drugs in the classes either the, the harms or the benefits. And there are very sinister, dark forces behind why we have this arbitrary system set up in this way. It's not based on pharmacological pr principles. It's not based on addictive principles. It's not based on harm. LSD and magic mushrooms in class A. GHB in class C. It's topsy-turvy. It's a topsy-turvy system. It makes no sense. It's deeply patronizing. And it has no scientific validity. And if you do an analysis of 
substances and you look at the actual risks and harms and benefits based on a whole load of different characteristics, you get a very different picture. So this is the work of uh, David Nutt. Um, at, uh, well, he was in, in Bristol at the time. He's at Imperial now in 2010. He, he carried out this assessment, and it's called a Delphic analysis, this kind of work. What he got was a large group of experts in the field, police, probation officers, parents, judges, users, pathologists, psychiatrists, uh, surgeons, GPs, young people, old people. He got a large group of people, and he got them to analyze on multiple different levels the relative risks, harms, or benefits of 20 drugs, um, regardless of whether they were legal or illegal. And then they were asked to not, not make any commentary on those that are legal or illegal, but just base, them, um, base their opinions on the pharmacological properties, um, such as addiction risk, financial risk, cost to society, risk of death, cost to the individual, risk to families, risk to parenting. And when he put it all together into this, here is the result. And what we see here is that alcohol comes out as the riskiest drug. And this is an unbiased report. And tobacco is where it is there. And half of these things, look where LSD and mushrooms are and ecstasy. These are ranked as extremely safe drugs in comparison to the others. So if the Misuse of Drugs Act was correct, we should have all the Class A's there, then all the Class B's there, then all the Class C's there, and at the end, alcohol and cigarettes, which aren't classed at all. So it's completely topsy-turvy, and it bears no resemblance. And what happened with David Nutt thereafter was he went on an absolute campaign to tackle the government on this and the misinformation that is provided by the Misuse of Drugs Act. Because if you don't give people correct information, they will make mistakes, and they will feel that they are being patronized towards. And why should they toe the line? And why should they keep to the law when the law is so clearly wrong and not in their favor? So we're in this position. Why are some drugs banned and others are legal? Now, sinister forces underlie this. Racism, predominantly. Um, the marijuana laws in the 30s in America were blatantly racist. We don't want these filthy Mexicans coming over and shagging our white women. And they smoke marijuana. And marijuana, I hate the term marijuana. I don't use the term marijuana. I use the term cannabis, which is the name of the plant. The reason marijuana as a term has been propagated, it was a term that was propagated by the US government because it was the Mexican name for the plant. And it sounds Mexican. And it put fear into the hearts of the good white Americans. So I urge you to try and use the term cannabis, not marijuana. And especially Rick Doblin, if you're listening, because he uses that term all the time. It's cannabis. And similarly, we had the same kind of approach to heroin and uh, uh, black people and the use of heroin. And we have these sinister forces that have resulted in this arbitrary situation. And they're not based on pharmacology and they're not based on health and they're not based on safety. They're based on this bizarre desire to completely eradicate drug use. And drug use is something, the altered state of consciousness is something that human beings have been doing for at least 5,000 years. And I only say 5,000 years because that's the earliest written records. And the, in the earliest written records, we have evidence of the use of opium and cannabis. Um, so we can make a pretty good guess that for the tens of thousands of years before people started writing about it, they were still doing it. So the use of altered states of consciousness has developed with humanity we would not be where we were had it not been for our use of altered states of consciousness. And it's a very relatively recent Christocentric attitude that these things can be eradicated and that there's something wrong and filthy and impure about an altered state, unless it's alcohol, which is okay because that's not a drug. So when you pr prohibit something, it doesn't go away. And with the 2016 Psychoactive Substances Act, which is again a bizarre piece of stature, um, the idea that uh, if you ban something, it'll go away. When I first heard about that, my immediate thought was, oh, great, what we should do is we should make heroin and crack cocaine illegal. Oh, no, we did. It doesn't work. They don't go away. What you do is you just create an underground um, criminal network to sell it. Cannabis is the third biggest cash crop on the planet, second only to wheat and rice. 
but completely unregulated in almost everywhere in the planet. So we've created the mafia. We've created an underworld for buying and selling and distributing these substances that people want and that people predominantly use safely most of the time, even the nasty ones. And today's prohibition is no better than the prohibition of the 20s. And when you prohibit these things, not only do they not go away, but people queue up to make stronger versions of them. And we used to call it moonshine in the 1920s, high strength alcohol that caused a lot of uh, problems or often not alcohol. It wouldn't be ethanol, it would be methanol. Um, and nobody in the 1920s with their distilleries in the woods was making light ale. You're not going to risk getting busted making 3% light ale. If you're going to break the law to make illegal drugs, you're going to make killer drugs, the strongest drugs you can. And this is what we've got. We've got this peculiar market where, because of the lack of regulation of drugs, we have a free-for-all, get as high as you can on the strongest stuff, under the police radar, under the radar of services, under the radar of medicine, in order to get as high as possible because of the laws that are in place. It's extremely dangerous. And then what I'm waiting for is to people, for people to actually start taking governments to court on the grounds of human rights for damaging them. And when I hear of young people dying from drugs, um, like, say, for example, MDMA, um, I don't think this evil drug, I think this evil government, you have blood on your hands for the death of that young person. They need not have died. Drugs don't kill people. Prohibition kills people. And this is one of the best examples of the folly of the war on drugs, the idea of synthetic cannabis. Now, maybe I'm going to learn something here, but I've been asking around a lot of people for a long time about moderate spice users, moderate synthetic cannabis users, and I can't find any. It seems to be a drug that is only really abused. Now, I may be wrong, and I would love to talk to people who can talk to me about positive experiences of synthetic cannabinoids and their use of them in a positive way. I have no doubt they exist, and they're probably quite likely to be here if they're going to be anywhere, because you're sensible users. But for the vast majority, synthetic cannabinoids have become so problematic, um, and they are very closely aligned now in the UK with opiate users, and they're interchangeable. And when my patients can't get their heroin, they'll use synthetic cannabinoids. And when my patients who are addicted to synthetic cannabinoids can't get those, they'll use heroin. So those two drugs have become interchangeable. Um, people use them to come down off heroin. So it's really nothing to do with cannabis. So if there's one thing that's been quite useful about the whole rise of synthetic cannabinoids is they've taught us quite a lot about cannabis chemistry. Because um, if you look at the cannabis plant, and uh, the two main, there's lots of, lots, lots of psychoactive components, but the two main ones of THC and CBD. Um, THC is a partial agonist of CB1 receptors and, and the CB2 receptors. And CBD is, to a large extent, an antagonist of the CB1 and 2 receptors. Whereas these drugs, the synthetic cannabinoids, are potent, full agonists at these receptors. So what that tells us is there's a lot more going on in natural cannabis use than just CB1 and 2 receptors, which we kind of always knew. But um, making a potent version, which is just classic moonshine, basically, um, gives you a very different approach. And it's really nothing like cannabis. It's a very, for most people, it's a very intense psychotic episode. Um, lots of uh, physical tactile hallucinations. We've had two people in Bristol eat off their arms in the context of a, a, a synthetic cannabinoid psychosis. Why, why they eat their arms off, I'm not sure, but two people have done this. Um, and also loads of other physical things, like vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. Uh, cannabis is an anti-emetic, whereas uh, synthetic cannabinoids seem to, seem to cause a lot of nausea and vomiting. So a lot of extraordinary effects that are not like cannabis. So I would love to hear from people who have used this drug safely um, and what the potential benefits could be. Because we know there are a great many benefits of cannabis, and we are seeing some wonderful steps forward in terms of therapeutic cannabis. Cannabis has a strong evidence base for the treatment of nausea and vomiting. It has a strong evidence base for pain, but especially rheumatoid and joint pain, back pain. It has an evidence base for um, appetite increase, so it can be used in cases of anorexia with a small a, particularly the forms of anorexia that, that emerge, not, not anorexia nervosa, although it could be useful in anorexia nervosa, but anorexia with a small a, uh, for example, when on other drugs like cancer chemotherapy drugs or HIV drugs that cause a lot of nausea. 
And it has, a, and it has these amazing uses at reducing spasticity within the muscles. Um, and so with uh, MS, it's, it's emerged as a, as a useful tool there. And I saw a wonderful video, actually, of uh, a guy with severe MS. Um, and he was in a wheelchair, and his, uh, his boyfriend was pushing him to the edge of the swimming pool. And he's all, like, contracted up in what's called a spastic posture with this, this contraction like this. And his boyfriend tips him out of the wheelchair at the side of the pool. And he's all like this and hands him, and he plops into the pool, and he's hanging on, and hands him his, his hash pipe. He takes a couple of big, deep lugs on the hash pipe and just melts and opens up and swims about 10 lengths. And then it gets slow and slow and slow and slow and he gets to the edge and then he has another lug and then he goes off again. It's amazing. So it has these, these uh, anti-spasmodic properties. And we have these therapeutic clinics now in the States particularly. And this is a wonderful model for where we're moving in the world. And I was at the United Nations in 2016, which is a really, really good experience. I urge you to try and go to the United Nations if you get the chance. It's really interesting. Because it doesn't feel, it's in New York, um, but it doesn't feel like you're in America. It feels truly multinational. There's just hordes of people speaking different languages and translators everywhere. And there's about 190 member states in the United Nations from the different countries. And over the course of three days, they all have their four minutes at the podium in which they come up and they deliver their country's message about drug use. And it's really disheartening to see how far down the line the UK is on movement with drug policy. And um, we need to do better than that. So what are the models going forward? Well, we have this total prohibition model, lock people up. It clearly doesn't work. The next one along would be decriminalization. And that would be a good thing. Decriminalization would remove the stigma of a drug offense. Now, what I've never seen is a good economic analysis of what happens to a 16, 17-year-old down the line after a cannabis offense. And um, you know, if you've been caught for 16, 17 for cannabis, you may as well go on and use the other drugs because you've had doors closed to you. So you, you condemn a person to this life of crime and exclusion from society because the law exceeds the actual danger of the drug itself. So decriminalization is a good step. At least you're not going to get a criminal record, but it's not far enough. Further would be a regulated market in which drugs are available in a shop, in an outlet, selling them. And total legalization would be no control at all, and I'm not really in favor of that. Now, there's a slide you don't see very often. There's one of the fears about a regulated market. If we had a shop down there selling cannabis, ecstasy, uh, LSD, magic mushrooms, cocaine, we'd be high all the time. Everyone would be off their face. And this is one of the problems that, this is one of the fears that people have. Um, now, it's just simply not true. And this is not what's happened in Portugal and these other places that have reduced the drug laws. Most people don't want to be high all the time. Most people want to be sober most of the time. They want to look after their families and they want to go to work. So it's just not true. Now, just as the same reason we're not all on alcohol all the time, even though that's legal. So this is a myth that we'd all be high as a kite just because the drugs were available. So. Many people cannot imagine the idea of a drug shop like that. It can never be done. Now, this is what politicians call the seatbelt phenomenon. And the seatbelt phenomenon, for 40 years, successive governments were lobbied in the UK by the Royal College of um, Surgeons uh, and Physicians to make seatbelts compulsory in cars. They said the data is really strong. It will reduce head injuries and death. And every single politician, every single government said it can never be done. There would be riots in the streets. The people would rise up in revolution if you did this. And the same with smoking in pubs. It could never be done. And then one day in 1983, they said, make seatbelts compulsory. Ten minutes later, everyone wears seatbelts. Nobody gives a shit. The politicians had got it completely wrong. And the hope is with drug prohibition that we're going to do it in a similar way. That little shop on the corner selling drugs will not be the result of massive social deprivation, it will be the opposite. And we'll all say, for God's sake, why didn't we do this decades ago? That is the hope. And the evidence is strong that that's what would happen. So one of my aspirations is to set up the Bristol Fair Trade Cannabis Company. It just happens to be that the most righteous natural cannabis is grown in the poorest countries in the world. Imagine if they didn't have to grow coffee and other cash crops, but they could grow Malawi gold and Mexican and, and Moroccan and uh, Thailand and Nepalese temple balls, and they could appear in the supermarkets. You would solve these problems immediately. You would do away with this high THC, low CBD skunk, 
and you would have low, non-psychotogenic natural cannabis in the shops. So the cognitive liberty argument is the argument of it's my right to get high, it's my brain, it's my chemistry. Now, there's a crazy hippie. It's my right to get high. Hands off my brain chemistry. Now, I don't like this argument. Now, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. I don't think this is works. I think that the hippies have had 50 years to push this. 50 years. You are not going to get anywhere with this argument, okay? It's a very strong moral and ethical argument. I agree. It should be the case. But it won't work, okay? It would have worked by now if it was going to work. And it hasn't worked. So what do we do? So we put on white coats, and we create data, and we get doctors to do it. And they cut their hair, and they put on a tie, and they go into parliament. But does that work? We're hoping it's going to work. We're hoping that the legislation will change, and the authorities will listen if we take this direction. But what happened with David Nutt in 2010 is he was asked to produce this uh, document about MDMA with lots and lots of data. He took it to the government, and that didn't work either. because they have these preconceived ideas about the drug laws and they're not going to shift on them. So we're in this really difficult position whereby if it's not data and it's not the cognitive liberty argument, what will work? And this is the crux of the matter. It's about changing hearts and minds and it's about increasing accessibility to substances through changing ourselves and adapting. Now, you may not all agree with this, but I think if we're going to push this forward and we're going to move in a direction where we can increase accessibility to those patients who really need it, not just the patients but the general public, we need to change our attitudes. Now, there's a lot of esoteric subjects that float around the uh, psychedelic community. Um, a lot of stuff that's considered pseudoscience, anti-vaxxing attitudes, chakras, crystal healing. Now, I'm not being disparaging of these things. That's fine. But the people in authority who make drug laws are extremely disparaging of those things. And they run a mile if you walk in smelling of patchouli oil with dreads and a tie-dye t-shirt. They just do. Now, they shouldn't, and it's wrong, but they do. So are we going to adapt, or are we going to just accept that we're going to be stuck here? And I don't think we can afford another 50 years of prohibition, and I think we have to adapt. And we owe it to our patients to adapt. We owe it to the community to adapt. Because we need to broaden the repertoire of people who have access to these drugs. Because most people are not like us, okay? Most people enjoy this. This is where we are. And I'm not disparaging that either. That's just where we are. And my patients are hard, shaven-headed, tracksuit-wearing, tattooed blokes from Western Supermare who smoke tabs and drink beer. And by God, do they need MDMA. They need this therapy, and they're not going to get it if they have to subscribe to chakras and Indian batiks in order to access it. Now, that sounds... I'm really sorry that I don't mean to offend anyone with this, but this is just an evidence-based approach because these people deserve it, and these drugs are too damn good to stay with us, okay? There's not enough of us. There's not enough of us, and we're not diverse enough either, and I've totally run out of time. So this was just going to be a bit of a quiz. Who are these people? But we won't go through them. Um, but what they all have in common is they're all white men. And we need to move on. And we are moving on. The, the psychedelic community is becoming more diverse. But it's not nearly diverse enough. And we're leaving out huge swathes of people. So the psychedelic renaissance is now. Okay, The psychedelic renaissance is now. People talk about the 60s. The 60s was tiny. The number of people actually taking psychedelic drugs in the 60s was really not very big. Probably about 1,500 people in central London who ran the psychedelic renaissance. You know, There's probably 1,500 people in a two-mile radius taking psychedelic drugs tonight. You know? So this is the psychedelic era now, not the 60s. We have far exceeded the work within clinical medicine on all of these psychedelic studies. Okay? We are pushing forward. You are the new psychedelic pioneers and we're getting good media attention, and we have some fantastic studies that are underway, and we're pushing back the boundaries. And we're using these drugs sensibly, and we're learning from the mistakes of the 60s. And I know that a lot of people don't like to talk about an argument of, against the counterculture of the 60s, and don't get me wrong, I like the 60s, I like hippies, I like Timothy Leary, but 40 years on, and the hiatus that's been in the middle, we should be doing better than this by now. Albert gave us LSD 75 years ago. 
2% of people in the UK have tried LSD. That is outrageously bad outcome. After 75 years of this incredible tool, 2% of people have even tried it. We have to do better than that. And this 50 years cognitive liberty argument, it's my right to get high, has not worked. We need to be creative, we need to be diverse, we need to be brave, and we need to spread this good word. Thank you. This is In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call one 800 888 236 In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.